Hey everyone, welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Chris Case. Now, I'm not going to pretend to know much about time trials. I've done one. I also did an hour record on the track, and that was fun. On the other hand, our main guests today are arguably the greatest athlete-coach duo in the history of time trials. Kristen Armstrong won three Olympic gold medals and two world championship titles in her gilded career, and Jim Miller was her coach the entire time. The pair have a fascinating story about the way they dissected the discipline and dominated their competition. It wasn't necessarily the most traditional method, as you'll hear, but it was undoubtedly effective. Throughout our conversation, there are a host of fascinating and fruitful messages about how they looked at and broke down the race of truth. On a more practical note, we also hear from one of the greats on the men's side, Swain Tuft, as well as Sebastian Weber, who coached four-time world champion Tony Martin during his illustrious career. Finally, we get some sage advice from tech guru Nick Legan about how to bring speed to time trials, even if you have a small budget. All that and much more as we explore both the art and science of time trials today on Fast Talk. Let's make you fast. Hey there, listeners. I'm Ryan Kohler, head coach and physiologist of Fast Talk Laboratories. As part of my role, I spend time answering your questions on our forum. So I'm excited to announce our new forum member level. Our new forum membership unlocks full access to the Fast Talk Labs forum at an affordable price. You'll get access to all our active topics like training concepts, physiology, workout lab, nutrition, races, rides, and runs, and more. So join the conversation. Sign up at fasttalklabs.com. Join our forum member level by March 14th, and you can try it out free for two weeks. Just use the discount code PODCAST during checkout. See you on the forum. Welcome to Fast Talk, Kristen Armstrong, Jim Miller, the dynamic duo of time trials. Uh, Gotta say, probably the greatest coach-athlete time trial pair ever. What do you guys think? I mean, of course, we would like to consider and, you know, be referred to the greatest pair duo ever. Uh, I think we'd take it. We'll take it. We'll we'll take anything we can these days. Okay. (laughs) Thanks for having me. I I really appreciate it. Yeah, likewise. Sure. No problem. We were excited for this one. I have to say, you know, T-Teen's a little special to my heart. So uh, as we were getting close to this episode, I was like, oh, man, I got to do a ton of research. I got to get ready for this one. And then realized, look at the two people we're having. I just need to shut up and listen. (laughs) Exactly. Get out of the way. (laughs) We laugh. Where do we start with these these two characters? Well, I would say, why don't you tell us a little bit about, I mean, this could be the whole episode, but a little bit about your background with time trialing. You know, I think I want to start off with this little snippet of a story because it's really where our relationship began. And a lot of people don't realize how long our relationship has been there. And though I've come in and out of the sport, had a couple of retirements, came back out. So the newer generation is like, what is happening? So back in 2002, I competed in the largest women's cycling race across the world. It was called the HP Women's Challenge. And I was just a local gal who was invited to be on this local, I call it a token invite team. 
where because we were local, we got asked to do the race. And I took all my vacation days and I used to have a headlamp on and I would go out at night and just do loops for training. And then on the weekends, I would go out and do the women's challenge courses. And I would memorize the mile markers because I knew that when I got dropped from these amazing women, I would know how much further I had to go to the next town. And so I took all my vacation days. I was like, okay, I'll do this for the local team. I stepped in and by the end of the week, I had three contract offers. And one of those contracts was from the team that Jim Miller at the time was directing, which was called T-Mobile. It was the top women's team in, in the nation at the time. And this is back in 2002. And um, I had a contract offer from Saturn. I had a contract offer from Rona. But Jim, um, he figured out what was going to nudge me, which was he invited me to pretty much a 15-day stage race over in Europe. It was probably the hardest stage race that women could have at the time. And um, basically, I got in it, had some pretty bad Achilles tendonitis, and I didn't want to pull out because I wanted to prove to Jim Miller that I had what it took to be on his team. And one morning, we woke up, and he said, listen, before the stage, if you pull out of this race and have coffee with me, I'll make you a contract offer because I was hurting that bad. You couldn't even tell I had an Achilles tendon anymore. And so that's where it all began. And I remember in that conversation, he said, you know, you're super strong, Kristen. And he didn't say I was super dumb as well, but I was <laughs> kind of dumb strong. I sat on the front, I chased everything down, you name it. But he said, who's your coach? And I said, I don't have a coach. I just train hard. And he said, well, one of my suggestions, if you want to make it to the next step is that you work with a coach and then we'll take it from there. You'll get race experience and we'll do what we need to do to get you to that next level. And I was like, well, I don't know anything about the sport. I mean, I haven't been in it long. And I looked at him and I said, do you coach? He goes, yeah, I coach. I said, great. Then you coach me. You're my coach. You're my director. We're set. And so that's where it all started. It was back in 2002 in August. And he told me that in order to have him coach me that I had to take a month off the bike. It was kind of his rule. It always was his rule. We always took a month off the bike. And um, as much as I told him I was taking a month off the bike, I broke my wrist during the time. I told him I was taking a month off the bike. I broke my wrist cycling. And uh, I learned that lesson. And, and we, went, we, we went forward and onward. And before I knew it, you know, we were at the Olympic Games, two Olympic Games, three, four, so yeah, it's been a long relationship, but honestly, that's how that's how the coaching athlete relationship began. So Jim, as a, as a fellow coach, I got to say that's about the easiest client acquisition I think I've ever heard. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't that easy. There, the Saturn and uh, Rona both, I think, came pretty hard. Uh, I was just lucky enough to win that that negotiation. We will probably touch upon your history again and again and throughout this episode. Uh, the the time trial became your thing, and you're both known for it now uh, as a as a pair. Shall we dive into some specifics about time trialing? What broad starting place would you like to, to take when it comes to the best practices for time trial training, Jim? I'll I'll throw it to you first. Yeah, that's it's such a big one, and this is going to go back to a conversation we had, probably uh, is getting close to being a year ago, about just building the engine, right? And and I still come back to this, and this was really my original thought on building the engine was around time trialing, and that 
anytime anybody ever had super form, they always time trial, right? You never saw somebody with super form and they didn't time trial. And so, so really early 2000 is, is really when I started figuring out that, that if you just build the engine and you get, you get somebody on that, that super form, then they time trial no matter what. So that's probably where I start is, is just the, just the build up to it, the development of the motor. And then you get, then, then we get into the specialization of, of what the event itself may be. Training for time trialing. Is it just get strong and then learn how to time trial? Or does your training need to be really tailored? I would say yes. <laughs> People approach time trialing quite a bit different than we did. I think that was the really the key to our success for a long time is we approached it, I think, entirely different than most people were approaching it. The whole get strong, throw it into big gear, get low, get long, that, that whole idea was, was pretty standard, right? I mean, everybody's heard that anytime you start racing bikes, that's like the advice you get. And you end up in these really weird long positions that you have no leverage in and, and can't produce power. And we always approached it, I think, much different. And that first and foremost, with that, without a threshold, you just can't time trial. So make the threshold big. And, and if you give up a little bit anaerobic capacity on that because you, you put so much effort into it, you get that back in spades uh, over time in a time trial. Um, of course, if you're racing a pursuit, that's a different story. But if you're racing a, a time trial, then, then you get that back in spades. So for me, it's always the, the key marker for me is always threshold. Um, but after threshold, then it's that ability to go back and forth over threshold and back and be able to recover quickly and, and maintain the power and maintain the speed. And, and Kristen, you, you know, it sounds like when you first started working with Jim, you were, you might not have been a quote unquote beginner cyclist, but maybe your knowledge in some areas was of the beginner level. And you, I, I'm wondering if that's true, but also to, to extrapolate from there, um, taking us inside the methods that Jim, uh, that you and Jim worked through to get you to the level that you, you got to when it came to the time trial. Yeah, I think that um, I was actually quite new to just cycling, to be honest with you. I came from a triathlon background and filled with injury. And I was a swimmer and a runner growing up and played soccer, but really the bike was quite new. I had an engine, which is a lot of, you'll find a lot of women um, in the sport in America have this engine because they came from a collegiate sport or high school sports and they come and they are like a beast on the bike. And then you're like, what do we do with this thing? Because maybe they can't turn left or right very well, or they're dangerous. And it's like, how do you take this engine and make something out of it? And I would agree with everything that Jim is saying that we approach things just a little bit differently. I think that I was always amazed of how confident people were about how you do things. Like this is how you train for time trialing. This is how you train for sprinting. Oh, and by the way, this is how your bike should look. And this is how you should be fit on it. And I am such a outlier kind of personality where I'm like, really, I'm going to go against this. Like, I always had this feeling of like um, doing things a little bit differently, but I would say that to add into what Jim is saying about training in threshold, <clears throat> that is 100% key. I mean, you have to get an athlete to that threshold and, and know that you're going to move that threshold dial for a while um, in those early years of an athlete in their development. But once you 
get an athlete through that development stages, you know, three or four years down the road, now you're going to find that you're just trying to hit that threshold, you know, every season, and then you're going to build upon that. Um, but most importantly, I've coached a number of, of athletes um, throughout my career as well. And what I would say is one of the big differentiators is how do you get an athlete to um, almost accept pain? How do you get an athlete to hurt? And, and you're thinking, well, that's crazy. I mean, no, honestly, being able to turn yourself inside out on your own is something that is almost an, a bit of an art. I think that you can, ask, you can ask an athlete, did you give everything you had? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, well, how did you know? Did you fall off the bike? I mean, how do you know you gave everything you had? And, and so a lot of the athletes that I've worked with, I talk a lot about what does digging deep mean and how do you get to the point of pain? And, and what do you do when you feel pain? And so I think that there's this other element on top of threshold and, and time trialing because quite often I would have teammates who were great teammates of mine and we would be doing a team time trial together. And, and they were one of the strongest team time trialists that you had on the team. And, and they would say, gosh, why can't I take this to the individual time trial? What is wrong with me? I'm like, well, there's nothing wrong with you. It's a matter of how you, how can you push yourself? So to me, it's, it's super intriguing. Um, I think that there's a mental side, but also there's a physical side. Some athletes, uh, have cues to know or to tell them that they've gone super deep. I think Chloe Diger, for example, talks about, uh, doesn't she call her like a head in the garbage can type effort? Like basically <laughs> I will puke at the end of this. I know I will puke. And that's the, um, that tells me I gave it what I needed to that day. Other uh, people no. won't get to that point. Yeah. Mouth puke is the mouth rinse of champions. <laughs> <laughs> you just actually made our producer throw up in her mouth by saying that. <laughs> well, I was going to, I'm really glad you brought that up because that was something I was going to raise. I remember a, a very experienced top level time trialist saying he always had somebody waiting at the finish line because if it was a good time trial, he would basically fall over if there wasn't somebody there to catch him at the end of the finish line. And I know from my own experience back when I thought I was a decent time trialist, I would start out, there would be a level of pain that I would go, oh my God, I couldn't handle another two minutes of this and then make myself do another 50 minutes of that level of pain. And when I stopped being a good time trialist, it was nothing to do with strength. I just wasn't willing to hurt like that. That's it. Yep. You know, with Kristen, I'll, I'll say there is those mental cues, but uh, we used to always laugh during time trial week. If it was a big time trial, world championships, Olympics, some, something of significance. Uh, for her, it wasn't just the time trial day. It was the time trial week. And from about seven days out into the time trial, she was absolutely unbearable to be around for everybody. And for, you know, for me, I at least recognized that, that that was how she mentally prepared to go to this place right? It's going to be, it's, it hurts. It's uncomfortable. Uh, they call it endurance for a reason because you have to endure it. And it took her five, seven days to mentally prepare to do this. 
But then on the day, she could always go to that far, far, far edge of, of accepting the pain and, and working through it. And it was never, you know, as much as she won, she won so much, it's unbelievable. It, it never changed. It was always the same from the very first time to the very last time she raced a time trial. And that week was just going to be miserable for everybody. In what uh, ways, her, Jim? Let's get just, some dirt just, on Kristen. Yeah. You get a chance to defend yourself here, Kristen. <laughs> yeah, no, she can. Her husband would even say on time trial week, she was mine. And then after the time trial, day, he would take <laughs> okay, her back. Okay, interesting. Uh, <laughs> yeah, my, um, I remember there's a few time trials where I didn't win. And I would go back to, you know, we all have our team bands and team tents. I had teammates literally hide from me. <laughs> She's on a rampage. I wasn't like a, an athlete who, you know, would scream at my team or anything. It was very internal, but they were so scared and they had no idea what to say to me. And so to this day, I still have, you know, athletes that were to my teammates that they'll, they'll continually joke about, about that. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think that the preparation that Jim is speaking of is there is um, a mind preparation that you go through. And it's not like I have it on my calendar and I say, oh, hey, yeah, on Monday the 12th, I'm going to start my time trial mental preparation. It's not that calculated. It just happens. And your body goes in this, your mind goes in this funk, you go into this focus mode and it is unbearable. I mean, I, you know, my husband and Jim were, Pretty much, you know, we think about when we hear, you know, people hiring psychologists, I'm like, my husband and Jim were my psychologists. I didn't need a psychologist. <laughs> they, they, they were given that gift from me because they had to deal with these crazy emotional swings. Um, but again, it was just on these big days preparing for that one event and, and figuring out how I was going to, to nail it each time. This was an interesting process. You can see other people be super relaxed and, and have a good time, laugh. Uh, but on time trial day, they would start getting in that mindset or, or start zeroing in on what they had to do. But it was always funny because I would look at her competitors and see them start going through this on, on you know, the day of. And, and when we would show up to the race on the day of, it was super simple. Show up, get changed, get on the trainer, same warm up, straight to the start ramp same discussion basically and then straight in the car and we did our thing and and literally you we had this feeling of of on race day all that preparation had come together and it was the stress was over and now it was just time to execute is where you can see on other people's faces that that on race day the stress showed up so i think the the process of getting yourself there mentally early was was really a huge success factor in in her career as uncomfortable it was uh, for everybody around her. And it was really, you know, she wasn't grumpy to, to everybody. It was really, it was really her husband and myself, but that goes with the territory, right? And if, probably if the media. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but if you're going to, if you're going to play in this arena, that, that just, that comes with the territory. So you, you have to manage and deal with it. And, and uh, you just know it's part of the process and, and it is what it is. Um, but, but then come race day, you're, it always paid off. So, um, can you actually take us inside this process, Kristen? What, how did you, how did you practice this in training? Yeah. You know, I, again, there's so many unique pieces to how I train versus textbook. 
um, you know, some of the questions that you all sent over and that I knew we were going to discuss today. I, um, it's interesting because those questions are some of the general population's questions. And, you know, if I were, you know, living in the same time as Jim, I'd probably have a cup of coffee with him right now. And we'd probably just shake our heads and be like, gosh, you know, every, everything that everyone does around time trawling in my brain is like, this is just so traditional. Like I had women send me their training and say, what's wrong with me? Can you look at my training? What am I doing wrong? I'm like, everything. I mean, it's, I'm not the total geeky, like physiology gal. I know my training. I know my, I know my physiology. I, I major in exercise physiology. I can train people well, but at the end of the day, I think that there's a lot of, uh, what people think and, or how, how people think they should do it. And there's so many people saying that this is how you should train for time trialing that everyone does it, right? This is how it happens. It's kind of like when we chose tires, everyone's like, well, that's the fastest tire. I'm like, no, it's not. Have you tested it? Or did you read an article? People will send me links all the time. Oh, look at this tire. It's like the fastest. I'm like, according to who? According to the person who made the tire? Or is it according to the third party that I had tested all the tires? This is kind of the level Jim and I took it to is we didn't accept that some company came out and said, this is the fastest chain. We tested the change. We, we tested the friction. Oh, and by the way, the tests were done by us, like third party. We hired other companies that weren't affiliated with these brands. Number one, most of my races that counted were between 30 and 40 minutes long in duration. When I did prep, when you talk about mental prep, how do you prepare for these? There's not a lot of time trials on the calendar to prepare for these. So we had a time trial that we did um, come, it was mid season to end of season and it was a local time trial. And I'll never forget the first time I showed up to it. I was in my head to toe race get up. Like I had my booties on, I had my time trial helmet on, I had my pre-race mix, I had my trainer, I had my skin suit and people looked at me like I was crazy. They're like, Oh, so what are you doing? Like the local world championships here today, Kristen. And I was like, every time trials a world championship for me. And they're like, Whoa, okay. Well, guess what? Three years later, everyone shows up from their, in their booties and their arrow helmet at this race. And it's a local race. It's about 20 to 21 minutes in duration. And so, um, there's something that happens on race day and you can take your training and you can take that effort to a longer duration. So number one mistake that a lot of people do is they train the duration. Jim may or may not agree on this, but I'm pretty sure he'll agree with most things I say, but I'm not going to go out. And I mean, my Rio time was about 44 minutes. I never trained 44 minutes on my time trial bike. Not once. I can tell you that I trained 20 minutes really hard. And I was able to expand because of that fitness box that Jim was talking about. My general fitness was so high through road racing that I can extend that power in that time to 40 minutes. I got to the point where I can extend on training day, a 20 minute time trial to my 40 minutes. And so it was really important to train. I think that a lot of times what I see is when you're training for a time trial, People are training almost in a zone that's too long. So they're training right at threshold. 
or sometimes sub threshold because they're not able to keep at 110% right into that VO2 um, for that long of interval. So let's just say somebody does, we're going to go out and we're going to do two by 20 minute because your race is 40 minutes long. It's like, well, why don't we do one by 20 minute at 110%? So I feel like there's a lot of people out there training between 95% and 105%. But when you get up to that 110% and extend that duration to 10 minutes to 15 minutes and eventually to 20 minutes, that is the key zone for time trialing. It is critical because training from 100 to 105 just isn't enough. That's my opinion. And that's what I saw really was a differentiator. When I look at other people's training, when I look at what they've done for years, it's missing. I also believe that throughout my career, um, people ask me all the time, did you do weights? Now, strength training is really important. Um, it wasn't something that we did when I started. Do I regret? Do I wish I did more off the bike training? Yes, I do. However, I didn't start that until I was injured. And so, yes, I did off the bike training, but a lot of my training that was strength focus was strength work on the bike, low RPMs. I mean, Jim killed me with low RPM cadence. And if I were to choose one thing to come off of my foundation in my winter training, so if I had base miles and I chose one system to bring into my very beginning of my seasons, I would choose strength endurance. Strength endurance changed my ability to time trial. It is, to me, was one of my secret weapons on the bike. And now what I find is there is more and more athletes that are doing strength work off the bike. So they're like, oh, I don't need strength endurance training because I do it off the bike, like I'm good. And so the specific to the bike training, I feel is still very relevant. So yes, off the bike strength training is very important. However, there is a time and place for strength endurance and not strength endurance for three minutes. Imagine doing strength endurance for 50 to 70 minutes, but broken up in 10 minute segments. This is strength endurance. Okay. So you're specifically recruiting those glute muscles, those hamstrings, those quads that you need to have that raw power to push that torque and those gears when you're time trialing. Um, so to me that above threshold, getting into that VO2, truly into that VO2 zone and that strength endurance, I can tell you the physical side of training, I would say that those were two critical pieces to my success. I had a, a mentor a long time ago who was a, a multi-time national time trial champion. So a good time trial, obviously nowhere close to your level, but a very good time trialer. And yeah, we're talking about Canada here, right? No, U.S. Oh, US. <laughs> yep. So, yeah. <laughs> I had to get it in. <laughs> I, I had to race Swain tough every weekend. That was uh, not easy. Yeah, he's pretty, he's pretty good. He's pretty good. I, well, I, so, so here's my thing. Like, I was never a great time trialer, but I used to go and do these 40Ks against Swain, finish like 50 seconds to a minute down on him and just like not be able to talk the rest of the day. I was so upset about that. <laughs> now I'm like, if I could finish within a minute. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I was getting ready for my very first 40K time trial ever. And so I asked this gentleman, it's like, all I'd ever done was this 18K loop that we had that we did every Thursday night. And I said, what's the difference between an 18K and a 40K time trial? And he just looks at me and goes, how easy it is to get out of bed in the morning or the next morning. 
And it's like, no, I mean, in terms of pacing, it goes, yeah, I pace 40K the same as an 18K. It just hurts a lot more. And Chris, and it sounds like that's kind of what you're saying. Don't go and practice the uh, the the 44 minute or the 40K. It's do that shorter, learn that intensity. And then on race day, just learn how to extend that. Yeah, you know, time trialing is all about speed. And if you don't know what speed feels like, it's not going to the front and chasing the next group down. That's like setting pace on the front and bridging. That's not time trialing. And if an athlete's having a hard time trying to figure out what is speed, like what's true time trial speed, what's it feel like? Because how do you ever get that experience of what it feels like? And, you know, people will say, oh, in the road race, I had to get in the front. I had a time trial, like I had a time trial. So I dig so deep to like bridge that gap. I'm like, you weren't time trialing. So you put them behind a motor and you show them what time trialing is. You bring them up 50K an hour, right? You show them over 50K an hour, what that feels like. Because that's speed. And until you understand and feel speed, you don't even understand what getting up to speed is. One of my other favorite questions, and I think it was one of the questions that you had as well, is how do you pace yourself? I'm like, we're talking about pacing now. Jim, you need to share that story about pacing ourselves. And what happened in Rio and how I decided to, because of the hilly course, take away some weight off my bike and how so many athletes now are just living by the kilometer on what their pace should be. So, so this is where I think we also approached, approached time trialing a lot differently. We would, <laughs> we would look at the time trial tactically like uh, – where can you take time from people? There's a lot of places where you're, you're going to maintain, you're going to be even. Um, if it's a flat time trial, it's like, look, you can time trial 40, 50 K. And if it's dead flat, the, the margins between first and second are still within seconds, right? So you're talking about a 10th of a second, every, maybe every kilometer, if you're lucky. Uh, and it, and it adds up to, you know, 10, 15 seconds on the finish. So, it really depended where we thought we could we could make time, uh, and Rio's time trial course was actually a really interesting one to approach. And that it was a it was a circle, um, it was along the ocean. Uh, the first ten k were really lumpy, so it had three big climbs in it. Not three big climbs, three little hard kickers that were about um, minute twenty, maybe a minute and a half long, and then you'd have about a twenty five second descent, maybe. Uh, 30 seconds into the next one and you would go again. And after the third one, you descended out into this uh, weird sort of flat area that was cobblestones also, but it was along the ocean with a cross headwind and it was dead flat into the bottom of this, this 12% 1k uh, climb. But from the top of the climb, you descended down and you would, you started looping back so that you had a tailwind on your back. So your first 10k were really the race in my mind. Uh, if you looked at the whole thing, it was 33K. It was a long time trial. Um, I assume that every single coach was saying, look, we're going to, we're going to go out. We're going to, we're going to, uh, get into our power band here. We're going to, um, settle in and, and start riding. And I'm like, yeah, but halfway through this race, you get a massive tailwind for, for almost 15K. If, if you're going 55K an hour. Um, you're, you're basically going even with everybody. If somebody's going 60K an hour, that power output to even go 5K an hour faster is huge. So you pay a massive toll on that. 
Um, so we took approach. We're like, you know what? We're going to go for it in the first 10K, like full gas, full throttle. Treat this like it's an 11K time trial. And, and so that's how we trained. And we, we created an interval session that was basically 130 on, 30 off, 130 on, 30 off, 130 on, 30 off, 10 minutes of threshold, uh, followed by three minutes of VO2, just consecutively. And, and, and did this effort uh, over and over and over and over. Um, we'd use best bike split also. So I, so I had this, this a little bit of modeling that, that I thought backed up my tactic. But as we talked to everybody about it later, then for sure, everybody thought we were crazy, that that was insane. But we were 3K into that race and we had time splits at, at 3K, 6K, 9K. And the first official time split was at 11K. Uh, I knew at 3K that we had eliminated all but two other people and we had only started the race. Um, so then as we went through the 6K, the 9K time check, um, that was just extending. So we were taking time out of everybody. Uh, when we got the official time check at 11K, um, at the top of the, the 1K, 12% climb, uh, she was leading, had, had, I don't know, 15, 18 seconds, something like that. But we were going into a, a long, effectively like a 12K long flat tailwind. And I'm like, yep, we risked everything. Heart rate's going to be blown through the roof. But when we hit that tailwind, she gets on the big gear. Heart rate comes down. Things start feeling a little better. If she rolls 53, 55K an hour, then somebody takes time back. Big deal because they, they, they had to fight like hell to get that time back. And then we had a, a 2K, 2.5K climb. Um, towards the end of that. And I'm like, if they take the time back, they're going to give it all back to us plus more on that climb. We're just going to take it. We're going to take uh, time plus. So that was our tactic. And we trained for that tactic. And we, we went to that tactic. Um, I actually had a guy in Colorado checking best bike split and checking weather stations for me uh, all the way up to the start of the race. And I would, every 15 minutes, he would send me a text and say, uh, all good. And all I wanted to know what the, was that there was still a tailwind on the backside of the course. If the, if the wind had changed, then we've changed tactic immediately. But uh, this guy was just saying, yep, same wind, same wind, same wind, same wind. Um, so that's how, we, that's how we approached it, and that's how we trained for it, and that's how we uh, raced it. If you were to look at a power file and you would say this was a 33K TT, you'd be like, that was insane first 11K. But that was all the time. That was 18 seconds. It was all the time you could earn in that race. And after that, it was, it was impossible to earn. So that's how we paced. And that's how we approached it and thought about it rather than, than parking it in your, in your threshold power band and riding for the next 33 minutes. Sebastian Weber, the founder of Inside, has coached some of the best time trialists in the world and knows a lot about how to pace to get the most out of your legs. Let's hear some of his thoughts before we dive into the subject with Kristen and Jim. So time trialing. Uh, I really just have yeah. two questions for you and, and take your time with the answers. But the, the first one <laughs> is, how do you recommend athletes pace a time trial? Is it just try to hit that steady flat wattage or you know, there's some recent research saying that actually you do better if you, you do more of a, a J-shaped curve approach? What's your feeling about it? Where you get the most speed for, for the power that you can invest. 
I mean, that's what you need to do. You need to understand for my aerodynamics, for my body weight, for whatsoever, where do I get back the most speed uh, for the power that I can invest? So for a straightforward zero wind time trial, which is entirely flat, it's it's a, the same conversion, so to speak, from power to speed and for the entire race. But then, for example, if you have an uphill and you go slower, aerodynamic drag is less important, and then um, and then you get you get more speed usually for the or not usually, but you get more speed for the power that you invest. This means that on a climb you would normally overpace in the downhill. You would, if, if, I don't know if this term even exists, but you would underpace, so to speak, right? You would take it easier. This is dictated by two things. This is dictated by, okay, how long is the upper section? Is there really downhill? Or maybe it's flat and it's later downhill or never downhill, whatever the course is, right? Um, so that's a question. And then there's the question, if maybe in the downhill, like, can you pedal at all? Can't you pedal? Is this maybe alternating between whatever acceleration out of switchbacks and, you know, coasting? It's a question of your metabolism. Because some people can overpace more and recover faster, and other people can, you know, some guys can overpace for a long time, but not a lot. And then other other riders are more punchy. I can tell you some some stories. I'm happy to share some stories how we did it in the last ten years, but I can't I can't give you this recipe, so to speak. Like, yeah. like not this one general answer because it really depends on the rider and on the parkour. I'm I'm pure aerobic metabolism. My VLA max sucks. I go over threshold yeah. just a little bit, and, and I'm toast. So, for example, you had Swain Tuft, right? You said. Yep. When Bert Grouch became world champion ahead, ahead of Swain Tuft, 2008, right? It was 2008 was the first time we really, really analyzed, basically started to simulate TT parkours at higher off. That's what we're doing. Simulate TT parkours and combining the simulation of the physical part with the physiological part. And so Bert Grubsch, you know, VLMX 0.3, maximum power output in a sprint, 750 watts with 80 kilograms. You know what I'm saying, right? Like, like you know, when he gets out of the saddle, you unclip, right? So the parkour there was, you know, more like rolling hills. So even for a guy with almost 80 kilograms, um, you know, he he could use it and pace it overpace a little bit so he couldn't overpace a lot but the good thing is the climb was not super long so uh, was not super short right so and the longer climbs obviously you can overpace a lot because otherwise you would blow up right right and then the and then the descent the downhill sections were not that steep technical super super fast you would still pedal so that obviously suited him so it was more like a mild overpacing so to speak but then again, it depends. If you have a shorter ramp, you overpace more, and you have to understand how long is the downhill to have enough time for recovery. So that was more like rolling, you know, mild overpacing, uh, but really knowing the sections when to overpace because it was in the last part of the TT, right? The TT was like 52 minutes, and the uphill, downhill, the more technical parts were more like in the last 15 minutes. That was really, uh, really important. And then for another example, there was, it must be in 2013 or something, there was a TT in the Tour de France where Joachim Rodriguez became second or third, which for Rodriguez was, I think, the best TT result he ever had because he's not this TT guy, right? The good thing there was it was a lot of small kickers, like very short ones, like 200 meter ramps or something, or maybe out of downhill or something. And Rodriguez is kind of that, you know, snappy, explosive kind of rider. Obviously, he was concentrating in general on the climbing part and try to gain a lot of time there. 
And this is where the majority of the time gap or the majority of this good results came from. So, so for him, there were these, you know, in the downhills, there were these like kickers, like small reps. And then for him, a part besides the main part of the time he gained, or the main part of his good result was from a long climb or two long climbs or whatever it was. He gained a lot of time by really, you know, hammering over those kickers, like really understanding that full sprint over the ramps and then recovery in between, like even, even if he would only coast because the speed in the downhill was so high that adding more power in the downhill was not really important, right? And then in the sprint, we were really into the detail in the sprint, you would use a lot of clicking phosphate, and this is recovered very fast if you don't. This is kind of, you know, trying to make the complete picture here, so to speak. The tactic that just Jim just shared, we approached every race with a different tactic. So I remember in 2015 when I made a comeback, I hadn't raced since 2000, since London, and... Um, Basically, we went, we ended up at nationals and the, the tactic at nationals was two laps. And this tactic this time around was these girls haven't seen you race for year, several years. And our goal is on lap one is we're going to mentally get in their heads. We, you are going to go out as hard as you can for lap one. And you're just going to hang on for dear life and stop to and hope we're just going to pray you make it. But we think that people will get time checks because it's a, it's an exact two laps that a lap one, when they're seeing that they're down by 20 seconds, they're going to freak out because they hadn't seen me for years. And so it worked. I won. I mean, that's just how Jim and I approach time trolling. We can do whatever we want, however we wanted. And it wasn't like, we're going to go out at this steady pace and we're going to keep time trolling. I mean, in in Rio, my bike, if you, when my bike got weighed, it was at the minimum, I was, we always pride ourselves on the minimum weight, 15 pounds. And I can, to this day, tell you that there wasn't a, there wasn't another bike out there besides mine that was under 17 pounds. Mine was at 15. And I, you know, the last minute we made a really hard call and we took a, a another half pound off, um, by I didn't race with a power meter in Rio. Taking the, yeah, taking the power meter off, which is crazy for a team T, a TT, right? Everybody's like, no way. But it, the power is not your only gauge of effort because you have speed. And and uh, at least for me in the car, I never had the power. So I always only had speed. So I would know that if she was if she was riding in a tailwind at 53, 55K, I'm like, that's, that's as good as we can do right now. And so you don't push. Um, into that headwind section that we were talking about. If she's at, at 43, 45 K, um, she's probably doing max effort. So you don't push. Um, it, there was just a lot of things to do it. And this is probably, I think my favorite thing about time trialing is, is it's so, it's so mental and you can, you can play. This is where sports psychology is like King and you can oh. play these games with, with, Maybe sometimes it's just yourself, uh, but most of the time it's with everybody else. And, and, you know, Trevor, think about when you're time trialing, all the crap that's going through your head, right? I mean, your head's constantly trying to talk you out of this effort. You can't do this. You're not good enough. Back off just a touch, all of this stuff. If you give re somebody a reason to just back off a touch, boom, they're out of the race. Yeah. So, so that's, that's really how we raced a ton of things was, was, 
to take them mentally out of the race. So they would just quit. They would just give up. They'd take second. Second's fine. You're racing Christian Armstrong, whatever. No shame in second. And for us, we're like, no shame in first. (laughs) (laughs) What I like is we think they call time trialing the the race against the clock. It's you against the clock. And you're saying, no, actually, there are mind games here. This still is a game of chess. Uh, There still is a lot of strategy involved here. And even though I'm not riding beside the other riders I'm racing, we're still aware of one another. We're still getting time checks on one another. And there's a lot that you can do to, to play those games. Yeah. And you can play with yourself. You know, we always had time checks. We had race splits. You have race, you have cars on the radio. You have a lot of information. Um, but even if you're a, a amateur guy out racing 20K TT or you're racing 40K TT at nationals, um, the, the mind games still play, right? I mean, if you can get close to somebody um, who started a minute in front of you, all of a sudden mentally your mindset is, holy cow, I'm going good. I feel good. I'm, I'm strong today. Uh, vice versa. If somebody comes up from behind you, you your men, your mental game is is shot. You're like, oh my god, I suck. I feel terrible today. I can't produce power. And the truth is, both of those rides were maybe even be identical, and and that you died dead to identical power, identical speed, identical distance up to that point. But the perception in your brain of what's happening is night and day, and it's all, you know, you take oxygen out of somebody's brain and they can't think in the first place. Uh, if you just give that brain a reason to tilt to one side or the other, uh, you're on the game. Then you're starting to understand sports psychology. I always liked doing a time trial, knowing the person in front of me was not a good time trialist and I was going to catch him quickly. Even even yeah. knowing that, just that catching a rider changed your mindset for the rest of the race. Yeah. And if you have somebody fast behind you, the game isn't isn't like, let's say Kristen's chasing you. You're like, okay, well, look, three-time Olympic gold medalist, two-time world champion. Uh, if she focused on it, she won it. Um, she's probably going to catch me. But the game isn't, you know, she's going to catch me. The game is I'm going to go as far as I can until she she catches me. I'm going to make her catch me. And all of a sudden in your brain, you're like you're like going minute to minute, uh, light pull to light pull or, or, or power pull to power pull. And all of a sudden you've got 18 minutes down the road before Kristen catches you. And that becomes a pretty good time trial. Uh, so I think you have to you have to start. You really have to think about how you play these games, time trialing, and and how you you tilt your brain to that favorable side of of I'm going pretty well. Let's take a step back here because we are talking to the dynamic duo, um, and it, it it's very clear that you have an unorth you had and have perhaps an unorthodox way of thinking about certain things. Um, you had resources that other people don't necessarily have, but to our amateur listeners out there, it sounds like your advice to them would be don't listen to every the, the traditional thing. The traditional thing is traditional because it's been written about again and again or it's been practiced again and again. It doesn't necessarily make it right. So be a little bit skeptical, uh, scrutinize decisions. Um, and then the second thing that I'm hearing is if you want to do really well at a time trial, look at the course, look at the bike, look at your, your pacing strategy every time with fresh eyes. Are are those, is that a good summary of the two points that I'm hearing that, that would apply to anybody listening to this show? Yeah, I'd agree with that. 
Um, I would say listen to what people have to say because they're going to tell you what they're doing. Mm, and then you can uh, do something different maybe or you then, can trust them. Yeah. Yeah. Then you know what they're basically thinking. And, and you know, I think this is actually really human nature. Uh, if you give somebody a, person a, a chance to talk, they talk. If, if you just listen and they're willing to talk, they'll just keep talking and you'll ultimately get what you need out of them and, and hear what you want to hear and have an idea of, of what they're thinking and how they're going to race. Um, so I think, you know, I'm always, I'm relatively quiet by nature anyways, and listen first before I talk, but I listen more because people will tell you things that they didn't want to tell you. And <laughs> You're kind of a and, spy is what you're saying, Jim. Yeah. not just stand there. I'm <laughs> unassuming. The mellow and, CIA and, agent. Yes. And just let you talk. Uh, but yeah, that's it. Look at, look at every race, look at every course, look at every, uh, every parameter and determine if there's something there for you to gain. And if there is, then you gain it. And it's, it's two seconds on this section. It's two seconds on that section. It's four seconds on that section. And and now all of a sudden you have a sec six second lead. Uh, I think, you know, even with, with Kristen, one of the things that, that uh, was probably so underestimated in her time trolling was her technical ability to ride the bike. And we started this when she was really young uh, in the sport anyways. Um, and that was like every corner, we're going to take one second out of somebody. And that's just by going through the corner fast, breaking less, not breaking, uh, just sending it, letting, taking a chance. But every time you come out one bike length ahead, that's one second. If you have, if you have 20 corners in a time trial, we're starting the race with a 20 second advantage. And that that's literally how we looked at it. And in order to get there, then she had to, she had to ride her bike and learn to corner and learn to be aggressive. Um, but she, she'd probably tell you all the time in the car when we would come to corners, um, I would always be yelling the radio, uh, no breaks, no breaks, no breaks. And she wouldn't break. And, you know, occasionally she crashed. There was, there's more times, more than a couple of times that we jumped out and had to pick her up. But, uh, for the most part over a course of, of 20 years, um, I mean, that was, she became so good technically that, that it was a huge advantage. And for anybody listening out there, you can take that uh, wonderful and simple philosophy and apply it in a lot of different types of bike racing. I mean, cyclocross is another great example. Not to get, mm -hmm. not to go on too too far of a tangent, but if there's 37 corners in that cyclocross race and you can take even a half a second out of somebody in each of them, then there you go. There's a yep. win. Well, I mean, <clears throat> it's it's no different than it doesn't matter what you're going after in life. Most often people are training traditionally and they're saying, I'm going to do my best. I'm going to show up to this race. I signed up. I have a number. I'm going to do my best. And if I'm strong, I'm going to do well. But the way our mentality was, is everybody is training. What are we going to do differently that other people aren't? And quite often people don't want to work on skills because it's not a good workout People don't necessarily, you know, if it's mountain biking, they don't want to work on suspension because, well, it's not a workout. You know, for me, like going into the um, wind tunnel, spending three days off my bike, except for the two hours in the wind tunnel or four hours in the wind tunnel, there's a lot of people and a lot of my peers and competitors that would freak out about being off the bike for three days. 
And I'm like, wait a minute, I just gained so much time with barely being on my bike. This is amazing. <laughs> and so I was in a different mentality of how can I gain time by putting in a different kind of work, not physical work, because we're all fit people. Like when I showed up throughout my career, like if we did a lab test, we probably were all within like 10 watts of each other. And so it wasn't, it didn't come down to that. It was um, your attitude. It was your positive thinking. It was, did you go to the wind tunnel? What's your equipment? And then also, I think that the course specificity, meaning people would say, oh, what's your favorite kind of course? Well, as a world-class time trialist, your answer should be, I like all kinds of courses. Taking that course, I mean, Jim, remember we flew over to Beijing to look at the course. Who else flew to Beijing to look at the course? I don't think many people flew to Beijing. And so we always replicated the course that was in front of us in Boise. Always had every time trial I did, we had a course in Boise that pretty much matched it. And so that's how we train. And so there's a huge advantage to also taking your course that you really care about and that you're really going after and training on it. Now that we've heard from Kristen and Jim talking about all the ways you can find seconds on the course, let's get back to Sebastian and hear his thoughts on when to push the pace and when to hold back. Any other suggestions you would have in terms of how to pace a time trial? I think the best way is to really think about the parkour and start thinking how long the downhill is and how long the uphill is. Because the most easiest way really is concentrating on the uphills and the downhills, so to speak. Like, you know, with your thinking, with your preparation. Think about how long it will, how long the climb will take and therefore have an idea how much you can overpace. And the same is true for the downhill, right? Like how long does it downhill? Do you have enough time to recover? Because what people are usually doing, they, they overestimate the time of the downhill, so they overestimate the recovery time. Right. One of the most important things is when you do overpace and we use this strategy, make it more progressive. So when you try to overpace, let's say, it doesn't matter, in a 1K climb, if you're trying to overpace, do it progressively. Um, because what you want, what you want is you want to leave enough in the tank, so to speak, that you can push over the top of whatever climb or ramp you have. That's another part of the strategy is to come to speed as early as possible. So when we would do a time trial, for example, it's always advice in the radio, right? Like the last, like, like when it flattens out, for example, it maybe gets flat for 100 meters and then it starts to descend or something. Try to basically try to come up to the high speed as soon as possible. It's always easier and better to push harder towards the end of this ramp or this overpacing section, right, than the opposite. The, the worst thing you can do is basically overpace too much in the beginning. And blow up. And then, yeah, and then blow up. You know, I mean, basically, you, you, you're trying to, to minimize the drag for whatever section. Empty the, bottle, empty the water bottle before the final climb. <laughs> there you go. And I'm guessing a lot of this has to do with the fact that when you look at the formula for aerodynamics, it's you have that velocity cubed. So for every extra kilometer faster, it takes an increasing exactly. amount of power to to get that extra exactly. kilometer. Okay. Exactly. And then obviously, and then obviously, gravity gravity is linear relationship. Right. Gravity is linear, and uh, and uh, air resistance is is, is is not right. In terms of pacing yourself, what's your feeling about 
what you should be using. Should you be looking at power and heart rate or should you be learning to, to really time trial by feel? What would you recommend to both a, a top level time trialist and to somebody learning how to time trial? I personally, like a lot of the pros ask me, oh, okay, give me whatever power number for the overpacing or whatever. And I don't like to do that. I don't like to stick to the power number, really. Um, I would like to have it more by feeling. I mean, don't worry, it's not as, you know, you know as much as I love the power meters and the numbers and so on. I think trying to stick to a power number it can be very difficult. In the race, I would normally tend to say, to have people, you know, going more field. So I still remember I uh, this is back when I was managing a uh, a development cycling team, and we had a rider who was a strong time trialist. The pro team was very interested, and in basically said, "We're going to be watching you at the Cascades time trial. You have a good time trial there, and and we're signing you." And when we were at Cascades, I remember asking him, "Do you do you want to go out and see the course?" couple of days before the race started. It was an hour drive away. And he just goes, no, I don't want to do the hour drive. I'll, I'll just ride it strong. And I remember listening to him say that and go, you're going to have a bad day. <laughs> you're, you're, you could make your career right now if you, if you invest the hour. Kristen, I'm, I'm curious because you, you really piqued my interest when you, you told us we were asking questions that were too basic or too traditional or something like that. I want you to pick apart our, uh, our questions and outline and tell us the unorthodox way that we should be thinking about yes. time trialing. When I meant, when I said that, I think what I meant is there are questions that I get asked all the time and I wish I had, you know, an hour to spend talking about each of them and how I feel. And it's interesting throughout my career, I would say I'm an extroverted personality, but yet became a little bit more introverted throughout as my career went on because people were always telling me how I should do things. And I'm just like, this is unbelievable. It's, it, it goes even to, this is a good one for you all. Um, so your bike fit, tell me why everybody is trying to smash your saddle as far forward as possible. Like, can you give me an explanation on when you have a limit? It's kind of like when you have a, you can't drink until you're 21. So everyone wants to drink when they're 19. Okay. So you have a bike and you have your saddle and the limit is, five centimeters behind the bottom bracket. So what do you do? It doesn't matter if you're a five foot 10 woman, they're pushing their saddle to five centimeters behind the bottom bracket because there must be something that's gonna make me faster if I push the limit. Like we again was like, well, I train mostly on my road bike. Why would I have my saddle so pushed forward to the limit because all I do is use my front, my, my quads, like my front, my front quads. I'm not even using the same muscles as what I feel when I'm on my road bike. So how do I take my time trial fit and make it as close to still being powerful as my road bike, as far as like where my foot is, over that in my knee is over that bottom bracket. Yes, this is an interesting one. So Beijing time trial for Beijing Olympics was a was effectively what was it 10k, 10, 12k climb? Was that right, Kristen? Maybe five. Pretty much like straight uphill. Straight uphill. Um and straight out of the start house. And then it was straight down. So the way we thought about this time trial is like, look, the time trial is one on the climb. So this this is a uh 
10K time trial. And if you think about most time trial bikes, they're miserable to climb on. They're horrible to climb on. So we started from a base position on the time trial bike of replicating her climbing position. So where she sat on the saddle, where her hands set were affected in the, in the bullhorns were effectively exactly the same as they would have been on the hoods of a road bike. So when she was climbing that course, uh, she literally was like sitting on her road bike. And because she's on a road bike, then she can climb super well. Um, I think that day when we walked around the, when I, at least when I walked around the, the pits that morning, because everybody warm, was warm. Neck, but I would see everybody in their time trial bikes, the same that they had ridden all year long. And I'm like, that's crazy because we're not really time trialing. We're climbing today. And you have to be able to produce a ton of power uphill and climb. Now you have another 10K to the bottom, which was all on a highway at 60K an hour. So aerodynamics, aerodynamics on the way down were super important. But you were going to win the race on uphill. So you had to take care of that first. And then you were going to maintain that win on the downhill. So you had to manage your aerodynamics second. Um, so, so that's how we looked at it. Uh, and I think that's what, what Kristen's sort of getting at with the positioning and thinking about what you're doing on the bike versus uh, doing what you have done, or you get a, you get a, you get an aero bike fit from retool, or you get an aero bike fit from your local bike fitter. And now that is your bike fit. It's like, yeah, that's your bike fit for the moment. Um, but if the course demands dictate, we do something different, then we'll, we'll do something different. Um, yeah, I would, I would even change my, a little bit my saddle height because on a flat course, I am obviously, you know, when you climb and you're out in the hoods, your bottom is going to scoop back a little bit so that knee extension is going to be greater. So if I kept my most powerful position on the flats, if I kept that saddle height, when I started climbing, it was like I was towing down. So I had to lower that saddle. If, so if I had a, a hilly course, I lowered the saddle just a little bit um, so that I could climb and maximize my time. You know, quite often, take a course like the Tour of Gila where it's super hilly, you have to be in and out. I quite often afterwards would have competitors come up to me and ask me, so I, I saw you, you know, I'm thinking, why are you even focused on me? But I saw you when you were time trialing and you were out of the hoods on that first climb. I'm like, yeah, because the minute your speed goes down in aerodynamic position, you got to climb, you got to get just, you got to gain that speed back because you're not going to get it back once you lose it. And so it was, it was just a little bit, um, you know, always doing what I felt, felt most powerful at all times. And it was different each and every time. And um, in Beijing and Rio, we focused on the weight of my bike. So even my husband replaced all the screws on my bike with titanium screws. In London, the course was flat. And so we were more focused on aerodynamics versus how much my bike weighed. So London, London, there's a picture of, there's a picture that you are, if you Google London images, it always pops up <clears throat> and it's the ugliest, ugliest time trial position in my mind. <laughs> and when I see it, I, cr I cringe. I'm just like, Oh my God, somebody's going to judge me for, for this position. <laughs> but it was this really long extended position and this, the uh, backside of this course had like a 3% decline. And so you were going to get, you were going to go really, really fast. You're going to be on a big year and you're going to go really, really fast. Faster you go, the more important aerodynamics are. 
So we had this secondary position on that, on that bike that she would reach out almost over the, the extensions. And there was, her husband's an engineer, so you have to give him credit for this. It's a lot of this stuff. Uh, he built this little bar across the, across the two extensions. So she could get out over in front of the, the extensions and get really, really long. But when you see the picture, it looks horrible. It looks horrible. Um, but when we tested it, it was like how we ended up in this position was when you were at, at 55 to 60 K an hour, her aerodynamic drag was like ridiculous. So it's like, wow. It, okay. If, if she and say Judith aren't are going the same going 55, 60 K an hour, um, her aerodynamics are two or 300 grams better than Judith aren't because we've got this long, stupid, ugly, extended look. Uh, <laughs> it's not that I'm looking at it right now, Jim. It's, it's terrible. <laughs> uh, but it was wicked fast. So it's like, okay, yep, this is what we're doing. And this is how we're, how we're going to do it. Um, but yeah, whenever I see that photo, I'm just always like, Oh Lord, <laughs> but it was fast. So yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that sort of wraps up, you know, a lot of like what you were asking earlier about how we'd, how we'd approach time trialing and, and we really would like just tear apart a course and think about any single way we could get even a second or, or two seconds or six seconds. And, and, you know, if you had a long negative three degree grade and you were going to go 55 K an hour and, and it was six K long. And I'm like, man, if we could take three seconds out of that section, each K, we took 18 seconds. That would be huge. That wins the race. Um, so we always did that. We were always looking for opportunities to, to just get a couple seconds out of you. Former Vell News Tech editor, coach, and now Shimano Road Brad manager, Nick Legan, knows a lot about time trialing gear. Let's hear what he has to say. Yeah, so improving your time trial um, is always a matter of how much do you need to spend, how much time is it going to take. Um, so let's let's just talk through, yeah, what you can do for free, what you could do, let's say, for a five hundred dollar price range, and what you could do if if the sky's the limit. Um, so what's great about these is that they build upon one another. Um, everyone can do the free stuff and get a little bit faster, and I'll bet that most of you. Uh, most of your listeners could could probably benefit from some of these. So the first thing I'll say as a former mechanic uh, is wash your bike, degrease your drivetrain really well. Uh, get, make sure you're getting all the junk out of your cassette, uh, your, your derailleur jockey pulleys. Um, and then above all, really get that chain uh, really, really clean. Um, there are some great processes online you can do that's essentially like a, a homemade ultrasonic cleaner where you use a series of ball jars uh, or, or glass jars, I should say, and solvent to really, really strip that chain down. And then when you reapply a lube, it's the fastest chain you could have. Uh, so there is maybe some minimal cost there if you need to, to buy solvent, things like that. But you need to buy those things anyway as a cyclist to take care of your bike. So that's the first thing is wash that bike, degrease your drivetrain, uh, and then run you know, a lube, basically. Make sure that you're lubing that chain. There's a lot of talk about that. And I'll get into an option that I think is really fast in a minute. Um, the second thing you can do is adjust your tire pressure. A lot of us are either running too high, typically too high, almost never, but sometimes too low. And you can use, uh, for instance, Silka uh, has a really great tire pressure calculator based on the tire width and where you're using it. 
et cetera. Um, so that's free speed, you know, finding the right tire pressure uh, and then record it, you know, be fastidious about these sorts of things. Um, when it comes to race day, wear the tightest clothes that you currently own. You know, you don't necessarily have to go buy a skin suit. You can wear that jersey that's a little too small or you can borrow one. Um, but wear your tightest clothes because that is going to be faster. Um, the other thing to consider here is is borrowing. Sometimes, you know, if, if you're not doing that many time trials in a year, it may not be worth investing a lot of money into a time trial uh, setup. So you could always consider your friends, beg, borrow, steal, you know, raid uh, someone else's garage for fast wheels. Maybe someone has a skin suit that, that would work for you, things like that, an aero helmet, et cetera. So consider your community there. Um, off the bike, there's a lot you can do too. Um, yoga never hurts. Um, we as cyclists, uh, I, I count myself in this, we sit in a fairly static position on the bike. And then if you're like me, you spend most of your time sitting at a desk. So you can do a lot to get your body more mobile and, maybe, and, and better able to activate. Um, so strength work off the bike. Another thing you can do is visualize your ride. You can think about, if you know your course intimately, where do I want to put down the power? Where, where can I have a couple easy pedal strokes to, to catch my breath, et cetera? So, you know, how hard do you want to start? How is starting too hard a problem for you? So think about how you're going to approach your time trial. Um, and then for pacing, you can use something like Best Bike Split, which is an online, a free application you can play. You can actually upload a um, your, your course, and it'll help you figure out where to apply the power and what your, your predicted uh, results would be based on a CDA, or your coefficient of drag, and, um, and power. You can always, for free, be working on your fueling and, hydra and hydration strategy. So making sure that you hit the line hydrated, topped up, and then if it's a long enough time trial, do you need to carry fluids? Do you need to carry a gel? Things like that. So thinking along those lines. And then the, the last tip I'll leave you with for the free category here is just, unfortunately, if you're talking time trialing, you're talking pain. So you just need to learn how to hurt. Um, and that isn't fun, but that's, that's what it comes down to. So um, just digging, digging a little deeper. Um, if you have a $500 budget, the very first thing you should be looking at, if you don't already have them, is a set of aero bars. The second thing I would say is get it yourself an aero helmet, whether that's an aero road race helmet or a full time trial helmet. And I would argue here that if you don't have them, anything is better than nothing, as long as it is the smallest size that you can get on your head. Um, obviously, we want it to be safe. That's the, the first role of a helmet. Um, but the smaller the form factor, the faster. And then, and then there's a lot of debate about short tail and long tail, but we can get into that in the unlimited category. For 500 bucks, you should probably also be able to get yourself a bike fit. And that's going to be a huge benefit to you across your cycling. Um, but in particular, you can, you can work with people who have a lot of experience. I have a no Gorman comes to mind in the Boulder area who does a lot of work with time trialists and triathletes. Um, you could look at buying yourself a skin suit. If you don't already have one, you can look at buying a used skin suit. Um, so there are ways to, to get more for your money. The next, the last two things I would say are bike related. Um, consider a set of latex inner tubes in your clincher tires, if that's what you're running, because they do run a little bit faster. You can save a few watts there. Or set up your, your wheels and tires tubeless if they're compatible, because you can save a few watts there. Um, you could look at new tires as well. And then I mentioned chains earlier. Once you've got that chain really, really clean, wax that sucker. 
Um, so I, I personally have the crock pot set up at my house um, and it's great. And it actually becomes a nice way to just keep your bike running really well. And it happens to be a super fast option as well. So, so check into that online. There's a lot of resources there. And then boy, if the sky's the limit, I mean, we can go all kinds of kooky places. Um, but first thing I would say is you can look at a new bike, but do it based on a bike fit with someone who's, who's really experienced in the time trial or triathlon world. You could pony up and go to a wind tunnel or a velodrome and have some uh, position and aerodynamicist like, kind of consulting you in making decisions about your position, gear that you're going to use. Aero Coach uh, is, is an example of a company out of the UK that does testing like this. Um, but you can go to a wind tunnel and book time and they'll help you make decisions uh, about what gear is going to be fastest specifically for you. And that's the, that's the real beauty of those personalized sessions. Obviously, with that new bike and with that wind tunnel testing, you can look at wheels, um, disc wheels. You know, it's not like you get a lot of use out of a rear disc wheel day to day, but for a time trial, it's almost always the fastest option for the rear. And then figuring out what's what's going to be a good option or a couple options for you on the front wheel. Um, I got to plug coaching. It never hurts. You're going to hear from Jim Miller on this podcast, um, but but working with a really good coach uh, on specific workouts to get you faster, to, to boost that FTP, and to help you learn how to hurt is going to be a really good thing. You can always go, for instance, we're lucky here in Boulder uh, area to have um, CU. You can do some metabolic testing, some physiological testing to help hone in on what your personal attributes are and how to maximize those. Um, and then you can look at things like really out in the weeds, like custom skin suits, custom-made aerobar extensions. Um, you could go into altitude training, you can do all sorts of things. I mean, the wonderful kooky world of cycling gets even kookier when you get into time trialing. Um, but part of the reason is that the beauty of time trialing is that you can control so many of the variables. The course is X distance, and you're gonna try to cover it in as fast a time as you can. And so you can control all those things that I just enumerated, um, whether it's your bike, the, what you're wearing, your training, your nutrition, your mental space, um, so that's the beauty of it is, is no matter how long you do it, you can kind of keep refining. So I hope those tips were helpful. Um, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. So the overall that I'm hearing from both of you, and I'm going to throw this at you and then you can tell me, boy, you, you heard this wrong or I'm interested in your reaction. But I think uh, of time trialing as the sport of subtleties. You you watch a time trial on TV, and all you do is just see these athletes down in this arrow position looking like they're going really hard. And really, the only thing you might notice is some things coming out of their mouth. That's about it. <laughs> um, and when you talk about time trialing, you, you can say, like, take that hill a little harder, go a little harder into that headwind. You're not talking go from 300 watts to 600 watts. You're talking go from 300 watts to 330 watts. So there's all these subtleties that are really easy to miss, which I think leads a lot of athletes to think, push my seat forward, drop my handlebars as far down as they can go, and then just stare at my power the whole time and put out the biggest power I can. What I'm hearing from both of you is there are all these subtleties that make a, little, you know, a couple seconds here, a couple seconds there, and you need to be thinking about all those, but you don't necessarily see them. No, you don't. That That's the unfortunate thing about time traveling. I think if you're in the time trial and you're part of the time trial, it's the most beautiful thing. If you're watching it on TV or on the side of the road, it, it's pretty dull. Um, 
famous saying I used to always say was, I don't care where they put the time trial. Uh, the same ones win same the time trial regardless. I just hope it's someplace pretty. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it gives the the rest of us, yeah. It gives us the rest of us something to look at. Uh, but yeah, the settlers are, are huge. You know, Kristen all the time in the car, all the time I'd ask her if she could give me two more RPMs. And it was just like, it was constant. Like, can you give me two more RPMs? And then you see the, the cadence come up. And it seems like such an insignificant thing, two RPMs. But next time you're on the trainer or and you're on you're on Zwift and you're riding, lift your RPMs by two RPMs and see what happens to the power. It it comes, it goes way up. And if you can hold that for one minute, it's like you just you just went three seconds faster in that kilometer. And and really like for her at the end of time trials, that's what I was always asking for is like a couple more RPMs. And and if you can get her to do a couple more RPMs for this K, then you push on this next K and then you push on the third K. And now you've just gone through those three Ks six seconds faster than you would have just by lifting two RPMs. Um, maybe, you know, that might be oversimplifying, but it's really, it's really the truth. Just a little bit of change makes, can elicit a huge, huge difference in outcomes. And also realizing when you're in a time trial, the different moments. So to recognize that, if you go out of the gate and you have an expectation of holding X amount of power for 30 minutes and the first seven minutes, you are 10 Watts off of that X amount of power. How do you bring yourself back to telling yourself that this is okay? Because you need to accept that maybe in the first seven minutes you were 10 Watts down, but your competitor maybe 10 watts down in 20 minutes in because in time trialing you can easily just become defeated like super quickly. If you tell yourself that you're bad that day, um, this is just, I started off bad, so I'm going to end bad, but it's really not the case. And if you can overcome that, you're not going out exactly where you need to be going out at and don't worry about the data and you go off of just bringing yourself back in the game, every competitor out there is going to have a little moment in a 30 minute time trial. I promise you that. Uh, there are very few time trials where I'm like, Oh yeah, I was spot on the entire time. I mean, in Rio in that last climb, I was two seconds down. And can you imagine like the day before Jim told me if you're down at the top of this climb, you don't win because there's no time to gain it back. And I'm thinking, Oh, great. Jim told me yesterday that if I'm down with 5K to go, then I don't have a chance. So all these years, I've had to mentally tell myself and talk to myself and say, no, this is not the case because everybody's going to have a moment of weakness. And I think that we're so focused on what we should do and what we should hold. And if we can't do this and we're having a bad day. And so you've already lost a race. And that's where I think I've won many, many races because like I said, we show up to the start line with similar ability, but the years and years of experience, yeah, early on in my career, nobody went to the wind tunnel. Jim and I did. And then all of a sudden in London, everyone went to the wind tunnel. We're like, oh my gosh, what are we going to throw out there now, Jim? <laughs> like, oh yeah, good question. So then we started doing this whole thing. Like let's crush people's mentality. Like in the first lap, that was fun. And then we got into Rio and we're like, well, what are we going to do now? Well, 
we didn't ride with a power meter because we wanted a lighter bike. Oh, and by the way, I woke up and it was pouring rain in Rio. Everyone's doing heat training. It's pouring rain. And guess what? I woke up as a 42-year-old thinking, huh, well, for everyone that dreamed of like beautiful beach weather today, they already lost the race because they couldn't handle it. We just went on. We put our clear visor on. We went on with lower pressure on our tires and we just raced it. And most other people woke up and were like, it's raining. This is not what I planned. What am I going to do? I'm sketched out. So think about that. The mental side of this is just, it continues to be a critical piece. Swain Tuft, a fellow Canadian, took second place at the World Time Trial Championships in 2008. And that's after having to swap his time trial bike out for a road bike halfway through the race. I had a chance to ask him how he paces a time trial. And like Kristen, he talked about the dangers of power and the importance of finding your mode. Yeah, unfortunately, our lives have all been come bombarded with this uh, this power output. And uh, there's not a lot of guys that can go by field anymore. No. Uh, it's especially apparent when you're doing a team time trial. You know, guys will live and die by the by the SRM or whatever your chosen device is, and yeah. I think it's uh, I think it can be very detrimental to to base everything we do off of this uh, this set number that we did in some physiology lab, and and I really believe that okay these things are important and they are definitely a huge help in what we do, but at the same time they uh, they really disconnect you from the reality of where you, you might be at that given moment. And, uh, you know, it's more important to understand your body and understand where you're at at that moment than to try and live up to some, uh, impossible expectation on yourself. And, uh, you know, like I said, it's, it's very fresh in my mind because of uh, team time trialing and all the work we've done in the last little while. And I see young guys just trying to, to, to push this incredible number that they all believe is necessary to win the the world championships, but uh, it's not sustainable. Right. And so that's where I think a lot of times these things, when you don't understand your body and you you don't understand the what's what's working behind the scenes there, you really run into trouble. And uh, yeah, I've seen it many times. So for myself, it's it's more about understanding where you are at at that moment and what you are actually capable of so in the case of like uh you know we have to ride the front full to bring bring a break back okay I'll, I'll have a look at the power here and there but really i'm going by a feeling that i know i can sustain for if it's necessary i might have to chase for 20k if i have to ride for 50k it's a totally different feeling and uh that's just lucky from years of experience but uh i think more than anything you need to to find your own n equals one type of uh, magical number instead of uh, trying to to uh, push some uh, imaginary perfect number. I see so many guys trying to, uh, you know, uh, in a time trial or or whatever, trying to hold this um, this uh, power output, and it's never really the case. You know, it's it's never really how it's done. And a, and a time trial is all about picking your battles and. And understanding the course and, and yourself. 
numbers are great, but uh, they they don't uh, win all the bike races. So when you're in a time trial, do you have a computer at all, or are you going completely by feel? Yeah, of course. I, like I said, I'm still a fan of the technology and and uh, and the numbers. I'm I've always been interested, but I find like I can be very calm, uh, become very obsessive about it. And so for me in a time trial, like if I'm on a good one, uh, I will I will have a look, kind of from the start. I'm always careful to uh, make sure I'm not like punching way above my own my own limit. And yeah. so I really take a controlled start, and then once once I'm into it, I, I and I'm on a really good one, then my mind is is very focused. So I don't need to. I know the feeling, and I'll just check every now and then to make sure I'm around the mark and not like over it or or struggling under it. And uh, once once I know the feeling, then I just I focus on staying on that feeling instead of constantly looking down and. And having that funny little uh, uh, communication with the computer. What metrics do you use to gauge yourself? How, how do you gauge? Are you do you have a giant computer with every single number on it, or are you much more? I'm going to do this by feel. <laughs> oh, that's, um, Both would be I the answer. You could have really good feel and pacing and time traveling. Uh, if, if you know what 300 Watts feels like, you know, what 300 Watts feels like you don't have to see it. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, if you're year one of racing bikes, you probably can't guess within proximity where you're at, but if you're in year 18 of racing bikes, you probably don't even need a power meter to, to pinpoint your exact power. So that's why I would say both. I agree. I would say that, you know, as Growing up as a runner, I remember when I was running, you know, half miles and intervals or miles um, in a 10K race, you you know what a mile at what pace, like six mile, six minute mile pace feels like, right? Just naturally through experience. And so I think that when you take it to the bike, it's the same thing. You feel that with power. Even today I play these games because I have to play something with myself since, I mean, I'm not competing anymore. I'll go out and I play this game where I'm like, oh, I bet you I'm at 240 watts right now. And I look down, I'm like, yes, I still have it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> like, I honestly play the what watt am I at right now game to this day because I, I can guess it within five. Like, mm. I really can. It's crazy. I, I, I do that with the watts or speed or a lot of things for, for entertainment value to – to fresh freshen up on the uh, do I still have it skill set a lot of a lot of reasons to do that that's fun that's a good one you know here's one thing I'd say about pacing too is athletes love to have a number and coaches love to give numbers right so it's like I think you can ride this time trial at 300 watts athlete goes out they're going to bang 300 watts great uh, at the end of the day you're like well you did what we thought you could do uh, but I think when you when you're time trialing you you don't want to put the limiter on. You don't want to throw a governor out there and say, when we get to 300, we're stopping. I'm like, well, what if you're on a good day and you can ride 310 today? I'm like, I'll take 310. Um, so a lot of times, you know, when, when Kristen was time trialing, it wasn't like we're going to, we're going to target this number on this section of road or this climb. It was like, look, you go as hard as you think you can go. Uh, if, 
if I think it's excessive, I'm going to say something from the car. If I don't think it's enough, I'm going to say something. But for the most part, you're in control. If you feel like you can do more, you do more. Um, so I think that's a, that's an important thing. And, and when people would really get into pacing and you know be like, this is my number, this is my mark, uh, that was almost like licking your chops. Like, oh, yes, then you just go ahead and sit out there at that number. So this is where I want to throw two studies at you, mostly because I just thought these studies were really cool, but they, they get at this in, in a really interesting way. So this first study was literally just published. It just came out in December of 2020, so not even two months ago, where they, they didn't use elite-level time trialists, but they used experienced triathletes and, and time trialers and had them do a 30-minute a time trial. So they, they repeated it twice. One of the times, they had a single metric, time. So they do, all they knew was how much time was left in the time trial. The other time trial, they had multiple metrics. They had power, heart rate, cadence, speed, time, distance. They could look at all the kind of standard uh, mm. metrics. A lot of input. A lot of input. And what they found was the group that had multiple metrics, or sorry, it was, it was the same athletes who repeated the test. So when they did the time trial with multiple metrics, their performance was significantly worse. So with the single metric, the, the group average wattage was 287 watts. With multiple metrics, the group average wattage was 227. So wow. 60 watt difference. Big. So that I found fascinating. And then another study that was not quite as recent, this one was in 2013. This was more experienced, more elite level um, athletes. They had them do a self-paced time trial, and then they would repeat the time trial where they would have them try to average the same. So they, this, the self-paced, they couldn't see anything. The second one, they could see their wattage, and the goal was to average the same wattage that they did in the self-paced. And nine of the 15 cyclists failed to complete the TT when they tried to average the same wattage that they were able to do when they were just self-pacing. Yeah, that's the mental side of it. That's the game you're playing in your head. So certainly these studies are pointing towards more data is not necessarily better. So I wanted to see how both of you felt about this. I would agree. Look, at the end of the day, the goal is to go as fast as you can. And sometimes it is what it is. And, and if you can only go... So hard on a climb, you can only go so hard. That's what it is. Um, so yeah, for sure, the power meter never, never is a governor. It should never limit you. Uh, it is a good, is a good gauge. It's, it's kind of like an RPM in a car. Sometimes, uh, you know, you're redlining. That's a bad thing. But if you're under the red line, sometimes it doesn't. It just doesn't tell you enough of the story. Data for myself is much more important. In training, uh, data helped me know that when I wanted to come back to the sport a couple times, people are like, how'd you know you can come back out and win? I'm like, are you kidding me? You don't think that I actually went out and rode with my power meter and was for sure that I can come back? <laughs> like, like, you know, and so I think that the data that I have and that I've you know, had on training peaks for years and years, like it's like my diary, like data matters. Um, but on race day, it's just basically throwing all that out 
and just being ready to hurt as much as you can and, and following through with that tactic. And so, you know, I, when we talk about data, you know, I'm, I threw my, some of my data points and collection away. I, I don't like to be, of course, controlled. So I'll never forget when I was climbing up Oak Glen years ago and I looked down at my heart rate and I saw a number I'd never seen before. And I pretty much got dropped in the last two kilometers because I was so freaked out that I was like, I can't ever wear a heart rate monitor again. <laughs> it was so scary. Um, so I've never been a huge, I, I do collect data, but um, I don't collect like, you know, six different points on data. I, I collect just a couple of things and I go with it. And I, um, the mentality part, I just keep going back to that because even when you work with athletes that are, you know, getting data from, this device, that device, this device, you know, you, how do you not wake up and question yourself of how you're feeling? You know, I, I tried not to, I tried just to go with it. And there was definitely some phone calls, Jim knows halfway through my workout, either telling him that I suck or he sucks like one of those (laughs) (laughs) another day. And so maybe data when I woke up would have been great to go off of, but I always was willing to just go out there and take the risk and try to go as hard as I could that day, depending on whatever he had posted for me. I will say the one thing I always personally loved about time trials, I I, same thing. I I love having all the records. I don't like looking at the data during the, the time trial myself, but I always got excited about seeing the data because you could do things in a time trial that you could never do in training. Mm -hmm. Oh, Sure. Yeah, over the years, my time trial bike, because I had, you know, years and years of experience riding my time trial bike. The final years of my career, I would say that I would ride my time trial bike on my Thursday night time trials and on race day. And I wouldn't ride my time trial bike much in between. Because my time trial bike became like, I used to call it my machine, where when I got on it, like, I just was like, Roaring to go. I mean, Jim can never tell me to get on my time trial bike and go easy today. Like it just didn't connect. I'm like, I don't get on my time trial bike to go easy. Like it's not what I do. So I made it something that was a very special moment. When I got on my time trial bike, I was going to go hard. It's a race and, car. Uh, yeah. yeah mm-hmm. It's like I always treated my time trial bike. I didn't go for long rides on my time trial bike or train easy. It was like, I'm either doing an interval session that's specific to a race or training, um, doing a local race, or I'm racing big time, but it wasn't a cruisy kind of thing. Cause I just, it was just such a special thing. I don't think you, I don't even know. I can't even control myself on a time trial bike. <laughs> my time trial bike just hangs. Like if I got on my time trial bike right now, I'm not kidding you. Like I would just go as hard as I could. I'd go out and try to get some Strava, like whatever. <laughs> I haven't been on mine since Rio. So, you know, it's just kind of sitting there. Like, Wait a second. You haven't been on it since Rio? No. Wow. Yeah. Approaching five years. I know. I ride the dirt a lot now. Who knows? Amazing. But I get that. As you said, it's your race bike. So you don't want to be on it unless there's a race. Yeah, it's it's special. It's definitely special. Um, But yeah, I haven't haven't been on it. And yeah, because my last thought, right, was how that feeling in Rio... And, and winning, you know, people ask me all the time, like, okay, 
you went to four Olympics, you raced a time trial in three. What was your favorite? And I don't have a favorite, but I can tell you the hardest and where I, I think Jim, myself, my team around me, my friends, my husband, I think on multiple occasions, we probably all cracked multiple times. And it was just a good thing that we all didn't want to quit at one time at the same day, because it probably would have been the end of it. Um, it was the hardest, most challenging probably goal that I have ever, ever endured uh, for many, many reasons, but it was, it was crazy comeback. And, you know, then obviously getting back to London with Jim and my husband having a bet behind my back while I was nine months pregnant that I needed to go race again. Um, Jim coming out and coaching me as just having a baby. I mean, Jim has now experience of bringing a, athlete back from motherhood all the way to coaching someone that's over 40 years old. So um, <laughs> twice, I think I, in London, somebody said that, that she was the oldest gold medal <clears throat> Olympic winner. Uh, maybe I think it was ever, I don't know, but something like that. I, yeah. But I, I literally remember thinking to myself, I'm like, Oh, had I known that I wouldn't even try to talk her into this. Right. <laughs> and then we did in Rio again at, at, <laughs> Four years later, I've got a I've got an idea for you, Jim. She hasn't okay. she hasn't touched the uh, the time trial bike in in five years or almost five years. She's once she touches it, you know, she's gonna have all this pent up energy towards it. <laughs> I think you gotta one more comeback, get her on the track for an hour record attempt. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Multiple. Multiple discussions around that before. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Well, the reason that that's been on my mind is because I'm sitting here talking to people that have scrutinized and scrutinized and scrutinized this particular niche of cycling and done extremely, extremely well at it. And Trevor's done a lot of time trials, but I'm sitting over here thinking, I did that one time trial once and it was an hour record. <laughs> and that's the only time I've really ever been, and you wouldn't even call it a, a TT bike track bike but yeah so that's why i remember right though you did you went pretty well right uh, sure i uh 46k yeah and it was outdoors correct boulder it was outdoors valley. it was on uh, boulder valley tight yeah. tight little track no experience right. on a track bike no experience as a time trialist you gotta understand yeah. that what, what i was helping on the coaching side this was the conversation. He's like, well, I want to make an attempt at this. I'm like, okay, so what's your experience on the track? Never been on a track. Okay, <laughs> what are we doing this? Four weeks. Uh, how much Perfect. do you remember about riding a TT bike? I've never been on a TT bike. <laughs> and I'm just kind of checking these things off going, well, this is going to be fun. <laughs> <laughs> and it there's was a coach that as a coach that's perfect because you have a very low bar you're like we're going to be successful <laughs> yeah, yeah but there was a certain point where i'm like if you just don't shoot off of the edge of the track and land in the parking that's lot of the other side day. <laughs> yeah this is a good hour attempt <laughs> right oh, and, and nice. the other reason that came to my mind was the fact that the 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 uh head unit that was placed under my saddle got inadvertently turned off before the attempt. So I actually got no data that day to know if I rode my brains out or if I did a terrible job. I used a good one. 46 K legit. That is. But yeah, no, that part was fun for me because I had to write the whole part of the article analyzing his performance. 
And he comes back and he's like, yeah, we got to deliver this article in about five days. And oh, I lost all the data. <laughs> we have a, a data point distance. I went this far. That's it. <laughs> Tell me how I did it. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I remember reading that story and uh, I don't remember that there wasn't any data in that story. I remember the discussions about all the technology that you guys incorporated and my memory of that story was, was actually very technically savvy. Yeah. I mean, all that stuff up front that we did to, to test me and, and uh, figure some stuff out and, and model it through, you know, the online apps and plug in these data points, FTP and CDA and all that sort of stuff and spits out a number. This is how far you should go today. Yep. <laughs> yep. As I remember, we did a, uh, right before we did a 30 minute test run. And I think we went, okay, that's our data. <laughs> <laughs> Enough about me. I really have to ask you this. Somebody who's had this sort of experience, when you got that gold at, at Rio, was it just pure joy or was there some of that disappointment and letdown now that a goal that had been consumed your life for so long was behind you? Or was it a mix of both? To be honest with you, Rio was, I was very fortunate because as an athlete, it's really hard to come to the end of a career and to accept it. I mean, I came back out of the sport two times um, because I thought I was done and I wasn't. And I always say that when you're an athlete competing most of your life, you have to be the one that says, I retire, I'm finished. And I've never felt so sure about myself and retiring than I did in Rio. Um, it was like the ultimate closure that I needed to finally be like, I'm good. And I knew that because soon after that, I started working with athletes and I was working a bit with USC Cycling. And when I was there and, you know, the women were out training and they were in the lab, typically for years before that, you know, I just wanted to be out there too. I wanted to be out training and in the lab and doing the things they were doing. And finally, I was at a point where I'm like, have fun with that ride today. <laughs> and it's a totally different mentality, but I feel so blessed that that was a big gift because there are so many people I know that still live with what I call unfinished business. Yes. They have these goals before they don't accomplish them. And me, they just hang on to it and hang on to it. And you're like, oh, I'm so sorry that you can't come to closure. And so after Beijing and after London, I did not have closure. I thought I did. I was like, kind of like, oh yeah, I'm going to go become a mom. Like that wasn't closure. Um, Cause it wasn't within, it was probably about 15 months after each of my retirements where I'm like, I had enough rest now. Now I'm ready to go at it again. And so after Rio, it was, Almost a feeling of, whoa, I'm so exhausted right now. I can't even, I can't even, I can't even explain it. I was never been so happy to, I mean, I look back now and I'm like, what was I thinking? Like, Jim, what in the world possessed us to even try for a third gold medal? I mean, the risk we took to like finish not on top, <laughs> what were we thinking? Yeah, that's just how it is, though, right? That's how I think. <laughs> that's just the coach. That's, 
yeah common nature we just we do we do that kind of stuff without really even thinking about it like it's who we are it's what we do yeah you know there was just uh so many different so many different reasons why why we was was tough but i'm glad we ended the way we did and um i feel like i'm you know able to to give back i'm able to help other people um so it's it's been fun and of course i always enjoy being on you know a podcast like this and you know having jim and myself on the podcast at the same time is is super fun because we can reminisce and our stories and you know we talk on the phone and make our own jokes but it's it's, it's a lot more fun to to share them with other people <laughs> Well, really appreciate you doing that. It's been great hearing your stories and hearing the perspective from the two of you on all this. I just have to say that that's a great closure to get to your career. You're you're really fortunate. Jim's done this before, Kristen. We like to wrap every episode of our show with a sort of give every guest one minute to distill the episode down. Tell us the most salient points from that uh, topic. Maybe we'll start with Jim so he can show you how it's done. Jim, what would you say? One minute distilling down of time traveling over 18 years. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Tough challenge. <laughs> oh, my takeaway for time traveling. Um, you have to mentally be prepared for, for the event itself. Uh, you have to be prepared to go where nobody else is prepared to go. And you have to prepare uh, in your preparation to be able to do that. Kristen, what would you add here? I would add that the time trial is near and dear to my heart, and it's called the race of truth for a reason. It truly pushes you to your limit, both physically and mentally. And it's a form of art. And so when you're training for it or you are focusing on the time trial, always think of it as a form of art and that there's a lot of different ways that you can approach it. Interesting. Yeah. Trevor, what would you add? I get to go back to something we discussed earlier uh, that I really enjoy this conversation because you just emphasize this point. When I was taught to time trial, I was taught in a very old school approach of you should think of time trialing like you are like ignore the hills, ignore the wind. You're on a trainer that's controlling your wattage. And the best time trial is where it just looks like you were you were sitting on that trainer for 40K or whatever it was. And really, I think I was taught wrong. This is a sport of subtleties. So it might look like that from the outside that you're just sitting there at a steady pace hurting. Uh, but it is a sport of subtleties. There are a lot of subtleties, and they make a really big difference, and you have to pay attention to every single one. You, you've you heard about how inexperienced I am at this discipline, but I would I would just reiterate some of the things that came out from this episode, which is to, to um, take that uh, s skeptical might not be the right word, but skeptical viewpoint on things and, and really question why you're doing it. Look for the seconds here and there. Um, because that that can be, I mean, it is the race of truth, but it can also come down to or the, be the race of seconds. So finding it in a corner or finding it in a, 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 a tailwind section, those things are potentially the difference between winning and losing. Gold medal and silver medal or plastic trophy and no plastic trophy, depending on what level you're racing at. 
Uh, so I, I like that. I, I really like hearing that. Let's, let's look at this from a, uh, from a different angle or every angle. And applying that, honestly, not just to time trialing, to, to a lot of aspects of cycling in general. I think that's a, a great mm-hmm. perspective. Well, thank you, Jim and Kristen. It's been a real pleasure today to have you on the on Fast Talk. Thanks again. Always a pleasure to be on. Oh, great to have you on. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com slash join and become a part of our education and coaching community. For Kristen Armstrong, Jim Miller, Swain Tuft, Sebastian Weber, Nick Legan, and Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.